Now, I feel like I'm cheating because normally I read that text and then immediately preach on it, but I'm not doing that today. Uh, normally, that's what, like, I use that text to, to determine what I'm going to preach on. But when I was preparing my sermon for today and I realized it was Father's Day, I realized that Alicia kind of brought it with her Mother's Day sermon. I don't know if y'all were here for that, but I have on good accord that she preached a really good Mother's Day sermon. Uh, so in the spirit of competitiveness, I felt I needed to try to preach a really good Father's Day sermon. Um, so if y'all will let me you know, take a step at bat to see if I can knock one out of the park, I really appreciate it. Uh, granted, I don't have it as hard as, as Alicia did, uh, because scripture is rife with fatherhood language. Uh, like Alicia said to the kids earlier, we talk about God the Father all the time. Jesus referred to God as Father. It's fitting that today in the lectionary text is Trinity Sunday, where basically uh, all over the United States, pastors are standing up right now and trying to explain the Trinity to people without committing heresy, and I don't know how, no, uh, how well y'all know how hard that is, but it's pretty tough. Basically, every metaphor that you come across is going to have some glaring holes in it no matter what you do. Um, but when we, it's fitting that today being Trinity Sunday, I mean, that, you know, the first thing when people talk about the Trinity, they talk about God the Father. They talk about this section of the Trinity. Uh, I could sit and talk about this all day and probably pull off those same heresies that all these other guys are pulling off right now. Uh, but there's just this importance of God the Father language. Jesus talks about the other thing Jesus calls God all the time is Abba, Father. And Abba basically translates uh, into Daddy, as close as you can pull that off. So it's got this, like, term of endearment, right? Uh, closer to anything that we have in the English language. But I feel like just leaning on this, on this Father's Day sermon, would be disingenuous. While many of us feel close and personal connections to God, many of us might struggle with the concept of God as Father. There might be some holes in that metaphor that really mess with us. Because it's not a simple distinction. For some of us, the concept of God as Father is a hard one to talk about. Maybe your father wasn't there. Maybe you do not have an example of a good dad. Maybe uh, there was a, a distance. Maybe, that, maybe your dad wasn't who you wanted him to be. Maybe your... Uh, father wasn't around. Maybe your father didn't supply the love that you felt that you needed that can warp our usage of father as a metaphor for God. Even past that, this day could be hard for a number of other reasons. Maybe your father's not with you anymore. Maybe you are a father and you struggle with how to be a better one. Maybe you aren't a father and you want to be. Just because the image of God as Father is one that we use in worship and is one of the ways we talk about God, it doesn't make talking about fatherhood any easier. So just because fatherdom is attributed to God more than motherdom is in Scripture, it doesn't make this any easier to talk about. So today, instead, I want to look at one of the worst fatherhood stories in the Bible. I want to look at what God has to say to us in the story often referred to as the binding of Isaac. For some of you, this is a Sunday school story, the story of a father who desperately wanted a child, and when the child shows up, God tells him to sacrifice the boy. 
Right when he's about to do it, God stops him with a replacement, a ram caught in thorns. You might have heard this story as God testing Abraham, seeing how much he loved God. You might have heard this as a story proving that God will provide if only we are faithful. You might have even heard this as a foretaste of a God who would willingly sacrifice his own son for you and for me. But on this Father's Day, I want to read this story as a story of two different fathers. I want to read this story as a story of grace in the face of confusion. So to begin, let's back up away from the Vacation Bible School version of the text and actually read it together in Genesis 22. Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took his two young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering, and he set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, Father, and he said, Here I am, son. He said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. When they came to the place that God had shown them, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide, and it said, it said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And then for the spirit of time, there is a blessing. We'll talk about the blessing in a minute. And then in verse 19, so Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. The word of God for the people of God. It's kind of weird saying that after hearing that story. Because it doesn't matter if you're a father or if you had a father, hearing the story of a father and son going through that is daunting to go through. I promise it'll get better, though. In this story, we have three main characters. We have a God asking Abraham to sacrifice his son. We have Abraham, who goes along with this calling. And we have Isaac, young, happy, ignorant Isaac, thinking he's going camping with his dad. A camping trip that three days in goes terribly awry. You have to assume that Isaac started to figure this out as they were walking up the mountain with all that wood and a knife and nothing to sacrifice. 
Isaac had to realize something was going on. But the thing that is missing from almost every sermon I've heard of this story, every lesson in Sunday school with a felt board and a song, is that Abraham was, what Abraham was setting out to do wasn't abnormal at the time. Abraham didn't live in a vacuum. He was surrounded by folks worshiping and appeasing their gods with child sacrifice. So this God suggesting to him to do this wasn't some random thing, but it was kind of the status quo, thing to be considered normal or even expected. This was this world's understanding of Abraham being a good follower of his God in this moment. This is the world's understanding of Abraham being a good father. We understand this because Abraham, the man who just a few chapters before argued so passionately with God to spare the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, when asked to do this to his son, he says nothing. So if this is the case, if this isn't the extraordinary sacrifice that we are led to believe this is with modern eyes, why doesn't he go through with it? If this is an expected thing, why doesn't he go through with it? Of course, he doesn't because God stops him. And we're left wondering why a God who just told you to do this would immediately stop you from doing it. We jump through all these logical hoops to try to make sense of this predicament. But struggling with this is not a new thing. This is not a modern question, why would God do this? You can see in Jeremiah 19.5 when God, talking about Baal worshipers and how terrible they are, says, they're terrible because they set their children on fire. And then immediately after that says, this is something that I did not command or mention, nor did it ever enter my mind. That's pretty bold language. To Jeremiah, not only does God not ask for child sacrifice, it has neither ever been commanded by God or even mentioned by God. I think this story is the story that it is because we fail to understand the Hebrew language. Sadly, most of our texts take any word for God and translate it into God or Lord and not show us the, the many names that people use for God. And in this story, there are two names for God being mentioned. Uh, Abraham is called by God to sacrifice Isaac in this God that the name of God that is used in this situation is Elohim, which is a very old name for God a name that Abraham could very well be connecting with an old way of thinking about sacrifice, a way that Abraham could be thinking about the world's way of sacrificing. It's the name of the God who to Abraham must be like other gods who ask to sacrifice their firstborn. But in the moment with the knife to his son, a different name is used to say that God is telling him to stop. It says the angel of the Lord, Yahweh, tells him to stop. It's Yahweh for the remainder of the story who talks him down, provides the animal sacrifice as a scapegoat, and provides the blessing for being obedient. Why would the writers change the name in the middle of the story except to try to tell us something? So often we read this and see this blessing and assume that this was all some sort of game to God, some, you know, metaphysical chicken to try to see if Abraham would go through with it or not. 
But Jeremiah reminds us this isn't a game that God would play. So I believe what we have in this story is how God thinks, or how Abraham thinks God works, running full force into how God actually works. Let me repeat that. That is Abraham's understanding of God coming face to face with God. And he realizes that how God actually works through the worried, scared look on the face of his son. It's through the love that he has for his son that Abraham comes face to face with the God of love. It's through this love that he finally meets the God that he's been serving this whole time. Throughout our lives, there's so many understandings of God that we come into contact with. The culture's understanding of God. The church's understanding of God. Some of these areas of understanding are true, and some of them are loaded with inconsistencies. What I'm trying to tell you now on this Father's Day is that until we come face to face with those that we love and care for, we don't truly know the face of God. Until love in its most intense, love in its most sincere, most love in its most real smacks us in the face, we can't truly know what God looks like. So if God's not playing a game with Abraham, if God's not testing Abraham, why does he receive a blessing for obedience? Again, we assume because in our minds, child sacrifice is something out of the ordinary, that the obedience is for bringing his son there in the first place. Because that was the status quo. That is the way of the world. But no, the spirit of Yahweh is blessing Abraham because he was obedient enough to forego the child sacrifice. He was obedient enough to only use the knife to cut the ties that bound Isaac in the first place. He was obedient enough to let his understanding of God change in that moment when presented with the love of God in the face of his son. So recently, to try to kind of uh, help facilitate conversation with the youth kids on Wednesday night, because I don't know if you've ever tried to talk to a whole bunch of 14-year-olds at once, but things can go off the rails real quick started showing these videos, uh, 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 three-minute videos, to kind of, like, introduce a topic to talk about. Uh, and this week, the video was from Brene Brown. Does anybody know who Brene Brown is? She writes a lot of books. They're really good books. She's a, a, a professor that uh, focuses on social work. Uh, she does a lot of research on the areas of shame and courage and vulnerability and writes really popular books about them. But she's also a Christian, so she's in this video talking about Jesus and why she loves Jesus so much. She says that if God just showed up and said, I'm love, love each other, we would automatically, uh, because we're so afraid of hard things, make it all about unicorns and rainbows and the easy parts of love. We'd romanticize it. So Jesus comes to show us love and says, I am love, and because I am love, I do the hard things. I make the hard choices. I love the unlovable. I feed the people that aren't supposed to be taken care of. Jesus came to show us what love looks like. It's especially fun showing this to youth because you'd, as you'd think to them, love is all unicorns and rainbows anyway, and they immediately say, no, 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 love is hard. 
But I think they're saying love is hard for a different reason than Brene is in the video, uh, because they're still in that youth mindset of what love is. But she's right, because we have the whole of the Hebrew scriptures to show us that without being shown what love is, we can't really figure it out. But any fathers, mothers, leaders, and caregivers in this room know that God can show us love in the faces of our kids, of those we shepherd, of those we care for. And if we let God show us what we're supposed to be uh, doing as we raise these kids up, if he shows us who we're supposed to be as we are caring for the least of these, the dangerous love of God can start chipping away at us and make us more the make us the love of God in our relationships. All that said, there's one other part of this story that I think we get that gets glossed over on a regular basis. After all of this, after Abraham receives this blessing from God and he comes off the mountain, he meets with his men who he traveled with and heads home. But something's missing. Someone is missing. Where is Isaac? Through all of these blessings and all of the miraculous, it seems like Isaac has run off. He's no longer in the story. But really, if you think about it for a minute, can you blame him? Yeah, this camping trip with his dad might have ended in attempted murder. And of course, he didn't go through with it. But think of the trauma of a little kid that comes in this experience. Think of the tension that comes from that relationship. This isn't something the writers of the Hebrew Scriptures expected you to gloss over. Not only does Isaac not come down on the mountain with Abraham, but as it says in the text, Abraham goes home to Beersheba. But the next we hear of Isaac, he's living in Beer Laharoi. We have no more interaction in the text between Abraham and Isaac from this time on. Their relationship is severed. And not just Abraham and Isaac, but also Abraham and Sarah. The next chapter has the death of Sarah. And she's not in Beersheba. She's in Hebron. The Jewish Midrash tradition holds that her death came from the broken heart from the events on that mountain. Abraham might have changed in that moment. There might have been a moment where God finally got a hold of him. But it wasn't before he did something that ruined his relationship with his family. His actions leading to that change tore his family apart. Because he put following his own understanding of God above loving his family with the selfless love of Christ. And because of that, the most important relationships in his life were destroyed. Of, co of course, none of us are going to be in a situation where we're nearly burning our children in ritual sacrifice only to miraculously uh, have the voice of God show up and a lamb stuck in a shrubbery. That's not normally how this works for us. But we are put in situations where the world and the culture and the church might tell us someone is unlovable. Maybe for some of you here, Father's Day is hard because your father believed that lie about you. But we can't change the past. We can learn to lean close to God and learn who God would have us to be in this moment now so we can save ourselves and our loved ones from the heartache that comes from forcing a caricature of God onto our lives and of forgetting the love. 
On this Father's Day, we acknowledge that God the Father is not some hard, heartless father asking us to sacrifice our children on the altar of righteousness or holiness, but rather that God is the embrace of love and a parent picking up their child learning to walk. God is the the sacrificial love of a teacher caring for a child coming from a broken home. God is the enduring love of a child without a family being taken into one with loving arms. May we know that love today. And may we show that love to our households, to our community, and to our world. Let us pray.